The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Some people like to do this simple gesture, putting your hands together. It's just a sort of a universal gesture of gratitude. You can just see what that feels like for you and whether that's helpful. Don't feel like you have to do it, of course. But it's nice to one way or another, however that works for you, to acknowledge what a privilege it is for a human being to have tonight. It was about 25 minutes just to have a little time where we have that opportunity to not be a beast trying to survive. Right, and uh, like just being able to drop our duties and responsibilities as a hu- as a human being for a few minutes, and to see what shows up in that space. And there may, if, when you have that sense, you might notice at the end of a sit a very organic gratitude, like so appreciative to have had that whatever amount of time it was for you. And I think I mentioned last week just some logistics that it's nice not to have a watch that you're looking at, especially those of you who are beginning your practice, there will be a tendency to want to keep checking, and it can be very frustrating, frustrating, like, oh my God, it feels like it's been two days and it's only been five minutes. So get one of those timers, even a kitchen timer works fine, especially if it's not too abrasive, but if it is, just wrap it in a little towel so it's not so loud. Of course, there are a lot of nice apps. Insight Timer is a free app that will give you a nice little sound of a bell at the beginning or end, beginning and end of your sit. So you can just download that app if you want. So, it's interesting, um, not just in an introduction class, but it's interesting how often it's helpful to keep coming back. I mean, I'm talking 10 years, 20, 30 years in. What does it mean to be mindful? What do I mean by that? What do you mean by that? Or what does the Buddha mean by that? And what does it, me- what does it mean to sustain Mindfulness. So there's any number of ways to do this, but one way is just, and I forget if we did this last week, but it's just a good practice. So just touch something that's obvious, right? And then you could just use that concrete experience, like your hand, my hand touching my other hand, right? I can feel the warm. I can feel the experience of pressure or contact a little weight. So awareness, mindful awareness means the mind is aware of that contact, that sensation. And that awareness isn't dependent on my verbal or my conceptual description or interpretation I might have. Oh yeah, I'm touching my hand. Like, the awareness of physical sensation there. And then just 
keep teasing out any efforting <clears throat> that's not needed to sustain the awareness of touch. And you might find it helpful to close your eyes, just there's fewer things drawing the attention elsewhere. you're getting a sense of what is it to sustain present moment awareness using a very particular experience of touch right now. And what if anything is interrupting that continuity of awareness? And just for a few more moments now, see if you can sense the mind or the heart unifying or gathering in this experience of knowing this touch, sustaining awareness of this touching, like doing it with a whole mind, whole heart, not tight but with a lot of sincerity, let's say. As if it's the most important thing, just to be intimate with touch, to not forget. And even in this simple example, you might notice that there's a really wholesome pleasant even quality to the mind. You can open your eyes now, move your hand if you want. You might notice there's a kind of wholesomeness in that gathering, the mind, the knowing mind, let's say, not being fragmented. Because, you know, so much of the day, my mind's getting pulled in different direction, reacting in different ways, right? But when we're doing this particular training and we feel sincere, we feel inspired to kind of do it, then the mind, for a while, it becomes really whole. It's just doing this one thing. And the quality of that mind, like it's not about greed, like you're going to get a prize, I want to be the best at it. It's really that connecting and sustaining they're two very wholesome, they can be two very wholesome qualities. And there's a particular flavor like a kind of healing in the mind from scattered, fragmented, to a gathering, coming together, unifying wholeness of the mind or the heart. And it has a very particular feeling. It's good to get to know that feeling, to really be competent at noticing whether the mind is fragmented and scattered and dispersed or the mind is gathered and settled and whole. And this mind, the settled mind, of course, is really capable of being competent at life in a way that a scattered, fragmented, distracted, superficial mind is capable of being incompetent at even really simple things. Where did I leave my glasses? Or, you know, 
Did I shut the burner off at home? <laughs> I mean, it's like we can cause all kinds of problems for ourselves and others when our mind isn't in that balanced, settled, whole place. And although we do this training in a, let's say, artificial way, like we sit down in a quiet room, we sit still, we use meditation objects like feeling the breath or feeling the whole body or awareness of sound, right? It's somewhat artificial, not like most of our day. You know, we wouldn't get away with that most of the day. But as a training, it's like going to kindergarten where I'm training with the best of circumstances. Can the mind be wholly present? But that wholeness, you'll see when you get some momentum in your practice, the wholeness doesn't have to get fragmented just because in one moment the mind is wholly with this experience and then in the next moment it's wholly, fully with another experience and then in the next moment. So we can have a moment-to-moment continuity of mindfulness and the mind remains pretty unified, pretty settled, pretty balanced, pretty clear, but it's not like knowing only one object, breathing in, breathing out, let's say. So you can do it in daily life. That's the point. The point isn't to get good at sitting so you can sit more and sit more and eventually, you know, say goodbye to your life, you know, and you graduate to a place where you just sit for the rest of your life until the end of time. No, it's really about taking advantage. Same thing with like a Buddhist meditation retreat where you go away for a long weekend or whatever you might do. Sometimes longer, you know, three months, five months, even people go away, not talking, cell phones don't exist. And just using that kindergarten, that secluded, simple environment to develop this particular mental muscle that initially we call connecting and sustaining. What are we connecting with? We're connecting with our life. So when you use meditation objects, remember, they're just a stand-in for your life as it actually is. It's just an aspect of your life. Your breath is part of your reality as a human being or hearing, the experience of hearing. And we usually use relatively neutral aspects that aren't so charged. Just the friendly feeling in the heart, right? On week five, we'll do the loving kindness and compassion practice. And you can even use that emotion, that attitude of love as a meditation object. But I won't talk about that tonight. But something that's relatively pleasant, relatively neutral, and that's where we do the training of connecting and sustaining. But all day long, now that you're sort of expert, you're in the intermediate stage because it's week two. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> right? Because what we're really thinking of is like lifetimes or certainly decades of development, right? So a six week class only will give you a little bit of a sense whether this is something you really want to cultivate over a long period of time, a lifestyle of going against the stream because the cultural stream is towards distraction and superficiality and reactivity and fixed views, right? Kind of sums up what 
we're prompted to be, how we're prompted to be by culture. And we're going against that stream, right? Instead of fixed views on open heart and mind, not fixed. Doesn't mean I can't have an opinion, but I don't have to neurotically hold. I can state an opinion with clarity and even forcefulness, even at the same time knowing that, you know, it's still in play. So I might change my view, but right now this is how I see things. If I have to choose right now, I'll choose this. But who knows what I'll think in the next moment or what will be clear, clearer in the next moment. So we can be open and we can have both a breadth and a depth of awareness. Right? It's like not in an intellectual way, but the continuity of mindfulness allows the mind, the heart, to comprehend what's unfolding, especially in terms of whether the way I'm showing up right now, paying attention right now, relating to my experience right now, whether that's skillful, wholesome, or unskillful, unwholesome. And we know that directly. It isn't something we figure out intellectually. We see what's left over. So if you have an interaction, you don't have to think through, like, was I skillful or not? We think we do, but actually we know, like, something's off right now. And then we go back and we think through and we might be able to... But we feel when we've been acting with greed, when we've been acting with hate, when we've been disconnected, we feel the heart, the sensitive heart, because we've become, like now in this moment, having 10 seconds ago acted out in some unskillful way, in this moment, this mind is the mind that did that 10 seconds ago. So it feels like this, it looks like this, because it's the continuity, it's the continuation, I should say, of the mind that was not so skillful. In the same way, if we've had a run of being relatively skillful, balanced, clear, responding from that clarity with kindness, with forgiveness, with understanding, then the taste, so to speak, in the heart is going to reflect that run of being relatively skillful. So morality from a Buddhist point of view is something that is discerned immediately here and now. It's not like we're being judged by somebody out there. So if we want to know whether we're being skillful or not, I mean, you can ask a friend to reflect back what they're seeing, but what we're really after is developing that capacity to connect and sustain awareness. And a lot of it is just about connecting with our own heart. And by the heart, I mean heart-mind. I mean that that which is right here and sensitive, that which is here and feeling. What's the feeling? And it's just, I mentioned this, I think, the first week. It's truly astounding that we haven't been curious about the mind. Even though some of you maybe have read lots of books about the mind, it's always been from this like objective point of view. But the mind, have we been interested in the mind subjectively? This mind, this heart, this whatever, this space of me that we call me, have we been interested in it? 
Because can't we do that right now with awareness? Sort of be reflectively aware of this, just for lack of better words, this inner space. How it feels. What's the quality of the heart and mind right now? And, you know, the body and mind reflect each other quite a bit. So we have the advantage. The body's, of course, much more concrete than the mind. So we learn our chops. We get some momentum, some confidence by working with what's more concrete. Oh, my God, there's a body here. It feels like this. We might have neglected it for most of the last, you know, two, three, four, five decades, but lo and behold, here it is, this body. It feels like this, this sitting body, this breathing body. And it has stories to tell, not verbal, right, but just energetic. Some people like Jack Cornfield and another well-known, He's not a Buddhist, but he teaches the same teachings. Eckhart Tolle, some of you know, he's written a couple of famous books. You know, they talk about the body of fear or the energy body. It's kind of the more subtle quality, underlying quality of sensation that's more subtle, so we tend not to be aware of it, but it tells the truth. So if we've been living like a maniac, you know, greedy, 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 or whatever, obsessive, 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 angry, angry, angry. Well, where is that? Who's paying the price for the mind being in a negative space? The body, in a sense, holds it or receives it. And so when we then have the opportunity and the invitation to feel what's here to feel, we start to notice what's been laid down over the years or weeks or days or hours, right? Oh, oh. When somebody's lived a life, life's been lived, it feels like this. And there's a kind of joke, but there's some real uh, deep truth to it. In the Buddhist tradition, you want to know the past, right? Whatever's showing up right now as the quality of your mind, heart, body, this is the fruit, the cumulative fruit of the past. Whatever got set in motion, laid down in the past, it doesn't exist somewhere, you know, on the side of the road back there, because there is no past. I mean, literally, there's my life that has been lived. It's not like behind me in the way that the mind superficially thinks, right? It's like, oh yeah, yesterday's right there. No, there's no yesterday behind us. There's just this, and this mind-body, this dynamic we call me, is, in a sense, what's left over from what was moving in the past. This is the fruit of the past. These mental tendencies of this mind, this conditioned mind, fruit of the past. And the more we get interested in this, the more we become devoted students to this connecting and sustaining, that, which is really the foundation of what we call wisdom awareness, mindfulness, Buddhist awareness practice. You know, we have these different ways of talking about it. But it's the, the sort of 
first step is this developing, strengthening this mental muscle we all have, but we got to develop it to connect with the present moment. The opposite of being connecting with the present moment is to be lost in thought, right? So thinking, but not aware that thinking is happening. That's lost in thought. And isn't it true that that's most of the day? There's thinking, but there's no clarity in that moment that the mind is thinking. It's just thoughts being known. Like how many times today, we were thinking a lot, most of the day, how many moments was the mind clearly aware, oh yeah, these thoughts are being thought right now. Not, not that often. So that means that most of the time we were in those bubbles of thinking but not aware. So then the content of the thought, in a sense, substitutes for reality. Because there's nothing outside of that bubble in that moment. And we're cultivating this ability to connect. Now when we connect, I'm not talking about connecting with the content of a thought, but we're connecting with these six things. So generally we call it body and mind. But it's always a dynamic, so we call it the activity of the body, which is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. The five physical senses as an activity Right? And so whatever this is, it's sensitive to the movement of these five things. True? And like you're discovering with hearing, which we've been working on these last two weeks, you don't have to do anything special right now to be hearing my voice. The sensitivity to sound doesn't require a personal effort. True? Right now? Hearing just happens. You don't need to presume that there's somebody doing the hearing because our subjective experience is hearing is just happening. Hearing is being known. That's actually what we're experiencing. And it's true with tasting and smelling when they're activated and touching and, and seeing. Right? So that's body. So in the Buddhist tradition, the five, the activity of the five senses we call body. And everything else that is being known, we call mind. So whatever else is being known, whenever, that activity is mind. Seeing, the inner seeing, not, not when I'm looking out through the eyes, but even when the eyes are closed, you know, the mind's imagining, that's mental activity. Any kind of, emotions is sort of a bridge between body, because the emotions often have a kind of visceral sensorial quality to them, but there's content also, mental content to emotions. So there's a combination. And of course, thoughts. So we have mental activity, we have physical activity being known. And so connecting means just knowing the flow of the body and the flow of the mind and then sustaining that. And this world, being aware at this level, let's say we call in Buddhism Dharma or Dhamma, which just is a, a word that existed even before the Buddha was alive in sort of yogic, mystical uh, Hinduism, whatever you call it, it's Dharma is like the truth. But in Buddhism, it's 
the way it is, right? So it's this sort of simple reality of bodily experience being known, mental activity being known. And when we sustain that, the mind, the understanding begins to transform because the awareness, the knowing, is usually not at this more subtle, direct, immediate place. We're usually lost in thought. And so it really, the understanding, the mind, the way the mind understands begins to be transformed just through experiencing in this more direct and immediate way. Because one of the things the mind begins to see is that everything is changing, moving in a natural, conditional way. And it, and the, anything that projects that it's personal seems begins to seem extra. You know, we always hear, you know, most people with even a superficial understanding of Buddhism will say something like it's about not being attached, right? But we can't do that directly like, oh, I got the secret teaching, don't get attached, because it ends up being an imitation, like we're imitating somebody, what we think somebody would look like if they weren't attached. So non-attachment isn't something anybody can do. Non-attachment arises naturally when the mind or wisdom sees things as they are, when it sees that there is no part of life that's actually worthy of attachment. There's never a moment when attachment helps anybody. That's when attachment is abandoned. We can't think our way to non-attachment. We can't make it happen. But we can get closer and closer to our actual experience and you'll find yourself living with less attachment. It will surprise you how, boy, in the past, if this had happened, I would have really been attached. I would have really freaked out. I would have really reacted. But interesting, much less so now. Well, maybe this practice works. So that's a bit of an overview. We have about 20 minutes left. I want to do a little practice at the end and share a little bit about walking meditation. But as I mentioned last week, we learn a lot from hearing from each other, the questions that have come up, but even just what you've been seeing. Now, hopefully most of you have done at least a little practice every day. You did some practice tonight. What did you notice? What got in the way of continuity of mindful awareness? When you had a few moments of continuity, what was that like? It's really useful. It normalizes the practice when people are willing to speak up. So this is a directional mic, point it like this, and then we'll be able to hear you well. And feel free to say your name. I am recording tonight, in case people can't, uh, couldn't make it tonight. Um, but anyone want to begin? What have you been learning? What kind of understandings are starting to come your way? What questions do you have? Yeah, Guru, right behind you. Uh, my name is Guru. How important is it to breathe aloud? I ask this because um, when I'm by myself, I don't need to breathe aloud to focus on my breath. But I do hear breathe others breathing around me here. And is it important? Does it help? Yeah, 
You know, it's a good question because there's all kinds of breathing practices out there, yogic breathing and other kinds of breathing practices, and they all have their, you know, some of them are quite useful, not for the same purpose that we're doing, but just as a, like a stress reduction technique can be very potent. So the way we're breathing, with the exception of those first few minutes, but even when we're doing that deep breathing for the first couple minutes just as a way of settling, even that breath you don't need to be hearing. Unless you have a lot of congestion, you don't need to hear your breath. And it's not useful for those around you if you're breathing in a way, if you can hear your breath, chances are people around you can hear it. And the idea of having a center is creating optimal conditions for people's minds and hearts and bodies to settle. And if somebody's breathing loudly, it can be quite disturbing. Um, And there's no reason for it. So we're using a natural breath in, a natural breath out. We're not doing ujjayi, which is a common yogic breathing technique that some of you know about, where you're creating a little friction in your glottis, a little bit like Darth Vader, right? And it can be, you know, it can be useful uh, in some of the yogic techniques. So unlearn all of that. You're just a human being, a breathing being. Breath comes in, breath goes out. Because the whole point of what we're doing is we're cultivating a stabil- an ordinary, but th- it's so ordinary it becomes extraordinary, this ordinary capacity to connect and sustain awareness. And what it does is it begins to see the nature of the mind and body as it actually is in its uncontrived expression of mind and body. And it's a shock. Because we think we know what the mind and body is. Me, right? This is like the short version of the Buddhist teachings. We think we know what the mind and body is. It's me. But what we find when we're not, when the mind is uncontrived, there's that simple, balanced, continuous present moment awareness, observing what? Observing the way it is the activity of the body and the mind that I talked about earlier, and it just dawns in the mind with some good practice over generally a long period of time that it's not me, it's nature. And that's words, of course, and that's why none of you suddenly woke up, I don't think. But when that actually happens, when the mind actually, wisdom in the mind actually sees that what this is is not me, but the activity of nature. A load is lifted that the mind or the heart never even realized it was carrying. We've been carrying a 150-pound backpack. We've been carrying it so long we don't realize it. And all of a sudden, part of it or all of it has dropped, at least for a moment. And it's an unforgettable experience. Like, I don't have to, as a human being, be burdened as somebody who's engaged, somebody raising kids, somebody with a job, somebody who cares about the world, doesn't have to be weightful. It's always, that insight is always a surprise. It doesn't matter if you are like a Buddhist study scholar and most praised scholar at Harvard. It doesn't matter if you understand what I'm saying intellectually. When it happens, 
it shocks because we've, you know, an ordinary human being like all of us, we've normalized the psychic weight of being me. All the fear, all the existential fear that comes with me, all the desires to become somebody that I'll value, that you'll value, all that psychic weight that just goes with being an ordinary human being, we don't realize. I mean, we sometimes realize how hard it is to be me, but it's kind of like, I guess that's just the way it is. And then through this connecting and sustaining, this continuity of present moment awareness, observing the activity of the body and the mind, the way it is, that wrong view, we say in Buddhism, is gradually, slowly uprooted. And the mind realizes this activity of me, what you know we conventionally call me, is just the activity of nature. Now again, don't try to understand this. I'm just saying this because it inspires us to sort of like, maybe I'll check it out. <laughs> but it takes time. See, this is the hard thing, is you've got to actually do it. And we're not talking about a six-week process, right? The six-week process just gives us enough sense like, there's a lot to learn in this. And one of the reasons we know there's a lot to learn is it's so hard. Have you noticed how hard it is? Just to get a couple moments of connecting and sustaining is like a breakthrough. When we get just five, ten seconds with some feeble continuity of that balance, right? And you'll really notice some of those wholesome qualities that I mentioned in the guided set. One sort of way to think of it is initially just some bodily calm. Like you feel like the mind feels like it belongs in the body, not like an alien visitor. You know, like, no, I belong here and now. That's calm. And then a lightness in the heart. You can call that joy if you want. But a kind of a buoyant like, and it's and this what we call joy, piti is the Pali word. It's it's sort of the beginning of sensing that everything's moving and there doesn't have to be friction. Everything's in motion, body and mind is a flow, and that underlying nature that everything's moving is light, not heavy. So that's beginning to open to joy. The joy, that lightness, causes the heart to be unafraid. And that's ease. Sukha is the Pali word. It's actually that Indo-European word, you know, Sanskrit Pali word, sukha, is related to sugar in English, right? It's the same linguistic roots, sukha. It's like, ah, I don't need to go anywhere. There's something here that I've been looking for for a long time, even before we know what it is. But we know it's not, I don't have to become somebody, I don't have to go somewhere else. It's already here. So the heart starts to, ah. And then into stillness and peace, the quieting of the mind. So this is like normal territory. When we get a little continuity, you might start to detect, even in a superficial way, some of these wholesome inner qualities of calm, lightness, ease, that healing quality in the heart. And, um, and ease is a, has a flavor of contentedness and then stillness and peace and silence. 
that's very um, gratifying in a way that might be surprising. Because you might think, oh, I don't know if I want stillness. But it feels so right. Like a deep, deep, deep rest. Where we really belong. Ah. Nowhere to go, nothing to do. And there's a rightness about that flavor of peace. So in, in the way the Buddha talked about the heart and mind, peace is the highest happiness. And joy, what we normally, you know, that kind of like bright, ecstatic joy, is sort of a very early, rough, gross kind of happiness. Nice, right? And useful and not, not more than useful, essential. Right? We have to meet joy in order to set in motion the more to support the arising of the more refined kind of happiness. Yeah, thanks for that comment. Who's next? Questions or experiences that you've had in your sits that you'd like to share with the group? It's really nice. To be bold, yeah, all the way in the back of the room, please. You want to help pass the mic, take turns. Hi, um, I'm Courtney. I noticed when practicing at home, if I was focusing on breath, it seemed easier. My mind didn't wander as much. When I was using hearing as a focus, my mind instantly, (laughs) it seemed to constantly wander. And I'm wondering what is more helpful to in the beginning go with something that maybe allows me to focus better or should I challenge myself with doing more of a hearing meditation totally okay to do what you like for your anchor and uh, you know and different anchors have different strengths and weaknesses the the downside of something like the movement of the breath as your primary anchor is um, for like this uh, applies to my kind of personality, which tends to be more controlling, right? So then that tendency of my personality to be controlling, whatever I bring my attention to, the tendency is to want to manage it, you know, to be parental with it. So then, but whole body awareness works a little bit better because when I'm aware of the whole body, th- it's harder to control, so, or hearing, I've used a lot too, because hearing, it, it doesn't lend itself to control in the way that the physicality of the breath lends itself. So, you know, you can, one thing that helps us choose what anchor we're going to befriend and really work with and learn to love, because initially you won't love it, whatever anchor you choose. The love comes because it, it, in sort of developing your relationship with that anchor, you learn to touch into the calm, the joy, the ease, and the peace. So it's sort of like, you know, lovers returning to the place they fell in love. It's like it reminds you of what's possible, going back to the breath. But you have to cultivate that relationship like using the breath to turn inward and to let go of the world. Now that again, it isn't the end to sort of tap into calm and joy and ease and peace. As nice as that is and as healing as that is in a kind of therapeutic, 
emotional, and even spiritual sense, as healing as that is, the deeper healing actually arises because having that inner quiet, the left, what's left over is we're just a more sensitive human being. So all day long then, you had a good sit in the morning, you got a little bit of these nice inner qualities, but for the rest of the day, see, everything else in life is going to appear a little bit louder because you touched into something more refined and subtle than what's normally gross, like interacting with another human being or driving through traffic, is going to seem much bigger, louder, and gross. So you're going to really notice how the mind is relating and whether that's skillful or not. Everything's going to be brighter and louder, and it will be harder to be a human being. When you do this practice well, you will find it harder to be a human being. You hearing this? But because you're finding it harder to be a human being, harder to raise kids, harder to be living with another human being, harder taking care of your body, harder earning a living, harder dealing with January weather in Minnesota. It provokes wisdom. What understanding, what way of me showing up makes this work? Because what we tend to do is personalize January weather, personalize the difficulty in the relationship, personalize the confusion of raising kids and the this and the that. But there's an understanding that allows us to be intimate and engaged, but not burdened. And that sensitivity is what grows wisdom, deepens wisdom. But it isn't pleasant. Awakening is difficult because we're letting go of our old ways of relating, self-centered ways of relating, because they don't work. And that's an unpleasant process. You know, we're in our relationship with our partner or friend or whatever, parent, sibling, dog, cat, whatever it might be, and we're doing what we've been conditioned to do through culture, which is to take the relationship personally. So if you're triggering something in me, I'm going to blame you. It isn't fair. All those sort of self-centered dramas that we use with in our relationships, all that gets triggered. But now it's getting triggered with more of that sensitive space of awareness and we see how I'm relating and we're seeing how much suffering arises because of how I'm conditioned to relate and understand and it's unbearable so we're willing to try something new like non-attachment or seeing things as nature it just dawns on the mind because The mind doesn't let go of something until it's clearly seen as not helping. And the mind is willing to let go of something even when it doesn't know what's better because it knows one thing, this isn't working, right? That's how we leave relationships or jobs or we don't always know where we're going. We may pretend we know, but a lot of times we don't. But we know one thing, this has to stop. I'm not going to do this anymore. This isn't the way. I don't know what the way is, but this isn't the way. And that's actually a lot of our learning is letting go of one thing because then it's only because we let go of what wasn't working that other possibilities show up. 
and we find our way not it isn't a self-centered project it's a natural project moving from self-centered drama ways of relating to relating more and more without attachment showing up with love and generosity and kindness and forgiveness but not self-centered drama we find a way not as a personal strategy but it's more about what isn't working wearing out and being abandoned because it doesn't work and little by little we find our way toward more skillfulness. If we have time for one more comment or question, yeah, over here. Hi, I'm Jan, and I find that um, when uh, I might be having a really intense emotion that I don't want, what comes to mind is if I meditate, then it will help me process this, be with this. And um, and sometimes, though, it's so intense that, um, you know, I'm, okay, let's say sadness, you know, so I'm trying to, I, I'm knowing sadness and trying to mm-hmm. be present with it. And, but it can not, I don't, it feels like it's really hard to have it be anything other than knowing, like, when I'm calm, sometimes I'm having other experiences of emotions. I can know it and like have it go through me more and get to a different place. But when it's a very intense emotion, it's much harder. And sometimes it almost feels like my mind, like, is by knowing it, is like more attaching to it. Yeah. And um, and so then I don't know is it maybe not the right time to be meditating? Like I, because it's I'm I by just knowing it, it's almost like extra focus on it yeah no that's really a good point and clearly you're learning and that's exactly how we learn like just that question and you can literally ask yourself silently well is this helping what would what might be helpful in this moment what way of relating should i turn the attention to the pain of this emotion or is there something else that i might bring my awareness to in this moment That's why we can always come back to the anchor, which is relatively neutral. Even if the strong emotion is the really strong, predominant experience in the moment, doesn't mean, as you're implying, it's always skillful to be aware of it. It's such a powerful move as we learn how to take care of our life to have some strong pain, emotional pain or physical pain. This makes sense for both to have some very strong pain and to know it's there, but to choose not to be aware of it. So it's there. You're not repressing. You're not pretending it's not there, but it's in the periphery because we're choosing to be aware of something else. And for example, this might be a good time to do walking meditation. And uh, I think most of you know where the handouts are. So if you If you didn't get that initial email that had the link to the handouts, you can just go to the website, look under programs. One of the first items in the drop-down menu is new to practice, and there will be a link there for the intro class with the handouts and the recordings from an earlier intro class. And there's a handout on walking meditation, and we'll talk about this next week. So read the instructions for walking and just experiment at least once between next Tuesday, uh, between now and next Tuesday. Just try walking. You need to give it at least 15 minutes so you kind of get past your resistance and the weirdness of walking back and forth in a hallway or 
wherever you can do it at home, preferably someplace where you can do at least 12 steps and uh, not too cluttered, ideally. But giving yourself a stronger anchor when something like a strong emotion is there, where you can really, even though the emotion might be stronger, you're really bringing the attention to the lifting and placing of each step, that physical experience of just taking a step and another step. And the attention, of course, the deep habit in mind is like, go to the, the drama of the emotion. But there's that wise parent that says, yeah, I know that emotion is there, that anger or whatever is there, but let's just come back to the feet. And then when that emotion reemerges and the attention goes there, then take a moment and just acknowledge, oh yeah, feels like this. And remember when it's strong emotion, the content may appear first, like why you're angry or why you're sad or why you're jealous. But go right and it feels like this. Go right to the um, sort of visceral feeling tone, the unpleasantness, if it's an unpleasant emotion. Oh, it feels like this. It's unpleasant like this. Can that be okay? Because the content's going to be more seductive, not helpful. But the underlying feeling, really useful to connect with. So it may take a few moments. Do your best. You may not be able to. Make peace with the feeling tone that's there, if you can. And then if you do really fully, 100% make peace with it, the whole thing might just pop and it may not be an issue. But you may not be able to make peace with it. So just give it a few moments and then go to the neutral object or some object in the present moment that you can be with in that whole non-distracted way. So you don't always have to go to what's most painful or difficult or provocative in your experience. Sometimes it's really useful to go with it But when you lose your balance, when all you're doing is kind of toughen it out, you don't want to reinforce being tight or tough. You want to reinforce that open, curious, relaxed, clear, balanced, those qualities of the heart and mind. So if you're not reinforcing or strengthening those, find some aspect of your present moment experience where you can cultivate those wholesome qualities. And you'll know when you turn away, you know someday, maybe even later in this sit, I'll come back, even if it's just for a moment or two, and I'll do my best. And you can do kind of a touch and go. You're there for a few moments, and then you turn away. And uh, 30 seconds or two minutes later, you come back for a moment or two, and then you turn away. It's a whole art that we're learning. And it's really all about how to show up in our own life, all life long. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.